Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, and today, once again, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. Our lead story today is, are we headed for a new normal? Many people are saying that, well, perhaps the worst is behind us concerning the coronavirus pandemic. Other people are saying, watch out, there's a new variant called Delta, which is much more infectious than Alpha, and Alpha in turn was more infectious than the original coronavirus that wreaked havoc on the world. And so what are some of the permanent changes created by the virus? Some people are saying that it's like waking up from a bad dream. And you can't realize that, oh my God, I went through that chaos of the pandemic? Well, it's not over. When historians write the history of the pandemic, they'll talk about the good and bad effects it had on society in general, including exposing the fissures in society. In other words, the coronavirus exposed the divisions of society, the rich versus the poor, and also the plight of minorities. And also, NASA has made it official. The next target is Venus, our twin in outer space. And the question is, why Venus? I mean, it's been 30 years. 30 years since we sent the last space probe called Magellan to map the surface of Venus. Why is the next target Venus? And then we'll say something about the Chinese space program. First of all, we have to extend our congratulations to the Chinese they successfully sent their astronauts to begin the process of building their own space station. That's right, a space station that is smaller than the International Space Station. But look, let's face it, in 2025, the Russians have stated that they're no longer going to fund their version of the International Space Station, meaning that Perhaps it's only a matter of time before the International Space Station comes tumbling down from outer space as it's deorbited and becomes a flaming meteor vaporizing in the atmosphere. Is that the future of the space program? And we'll just say a few comments about the UFO controversy. We know from the United States Pentagon that much of its files concerning these unidentified aerial objects are being released to the public. But on one hand, some people are saying that, well, nothing is really new. That is, there's no smoking gun. There's no startling revelation, something from X-Files. However, when you read very carefully the statements from the Pentagon, you find that there's a sea change with regards to what they're saying now. The military now admits that these objects are beyond our classified and unclassified aerospace ability. They didn't say that before. Before, they were always shy about talking about classified military research, like the stealth bomber. This time, the military owns up to the fact that, hey, these objects, whatever they are, they're not ours. They're not part of any secret classified military program. They have a technology that is beyond what we have. And then the next question is, well, then what are they? And then, of course, space tourism is always in the news because of the fact that the richest man in the world put a seat up for auction, and the seat finally went for $28 million. 
Think about that. Think of what you can do with $28 million. Think of what society can get with $28 million. And some people are saying, are we going a little bit too far? I mean, space is becoming a plaything for billionaires. And then we'll leave outer space and say a few things about inner space. We'll talk about Alzheimer's disease in today's program. Just realize that pandemics come and go. They're very sharp, they're very abrupt, but they do dissipate with time. However, Alzheimer's is perhaps the disease, not of the year, it's the disease of the century. And there's no cure for it. However, there is a glimmer of hope. As we reported on exploration, there's new research indicating that certain therapies actually work, at least in the animal kingdom. And so we're going to talk about a new study done at NYU which gives us hope that one day we may be able to stop the progression or maybe even cure Alzheimer's disease. And before we begin, let me say thank you. Thank you to all you listeners out there who may have picked up a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Because of you, the book sailed on to the New York Times bestseller list, the Amazon bestseller list, and the independent bookstores bestseller list. So thank you so much if you picked up a copy of The God Equation. And briefly, what is it? It's about the greatest quest in the history of science. The quest to find the ultimate paradigm, the ultimate metaphor, the ultimate equation that allows us to unify all the laws of nature into a single theory. This has been the goal of philosophers, physicists, scientists for, in fact, thousands of years, going all the way back to the Greeks. We think this missing paradigm that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, the missing paradigm is music. That, why do we have so many subatomic particles? Because they're nothing but musical notes on a tiny, tiny vibrating rubber band. And when the frequency of the rubber band changes, the particle changes. That's why we have electrons, neutrinos, protons, quarks. That's why we have the hundreds of subatomic particles that we get by smashing protons apart. We're getting nothing but the different musical notes on a tiny vibrating string. So what is physics? Physics is the harmonies you can create on these very tiny strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can create when these strings interact with each other. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. And then what is the mind of God that Einstein eloquently wrote about for the last 30 years of his life? The mind of God would be cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. So if you want to find out more about the greatest quest in the history of science, the search to find the holy grail of the universe, pick up a copy of my latest book, the God Equation, the quest for a theory of everything. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Many people are now talking about the new normal, given the fact that some people think we've turned the corner on the coronavirus. Many states, many governors around the country are lifting mandates concerning wearing a mask. So some people are saying, was it all a bad dream? Well, just realize that it was not a bad dream. It could happen all over again. Where do diseases come from anyway? Over 60% of diseases ultimately come from the animal kingdom. 
For example, take a look at the seasonal flu. That comes from birds and pigs. And so you begin to realize that we live in close proximity to animals, like the horseshoe bat, and as a consequence, there are diseases that hop over from the animal kingdom to humans, and it could happen all over again. Now there's a new variant that we have to watch out for called Delta. Delta, in turn, is more infectious and dangerous than Alpha, and Alpha, in turn, is more dangerous than the original coronavirus that wreaked havoc back in late 2019. And so some people are saying that, well, the worst is not yet over. But already people are talking about the new normal. They're, they're taking off their masks, they're taking vacations now, and they're spending money like they haven't spent in a year and a half. Some changes are going to be permanent. First of all, we're witnessing the acceleration of the digitization of society. That process was happening anyway, with the coming of virtual reality, augmented reality, the dropping of the price of computer chips, the rise of artificial intelligence. That was coming anyway, but the virus basically accelerated the trend toward digitization. And so we have this new calibration of society. How far are we going to go? Well, there's a new calibration coming around. First of all, take a look at the university. My university, the City University of New York, is actually shut down right now. In fact, I can't even go to my office because my office is shut down along with the entire university. So courses are being taught online until perhaps coming the fall semester. This means there's a new calibration. There's a new calibration between online and in-person teaching at the university. A new calibration is taking place. This calibration is happening throughout society. A new calibration between the city and the suburbs. Those people who could afford it, those people who could work online, well, they left. They left to go to the suburbs so they don't have to commute. But of course, that's a luxury that not everyone can partake of. Some people work in the city. Some people have jobs maintaining the city, and they will have to work in the city, not work on screen in the suburbs. So we're seeing a new calibration, a calibration between the city and the suburbs. We're also seeing a new calibration concerning entertainment. On one hand, we have online streaming, where couch potatoes can gorge themselves on all the latest shows, versus live events. That is the electricity you feel going to a live concert, a football game, a tennis match, an opera. So in other words, we're seeing a new calibration of entertainment. And of course, there's the biggest calibration taking place, and that is the society's rich and poor and the society's treatment of minorities. It's no accident that the group that bore the brunt of the pandemic were the people who had the least options. They could not leave to go to the Hamptons. They were stuck in the city, working with jobs in the middle of the greatest pandemic of the past 100 years. And so that exposed, the pandemic exposed the fissures of society, the rich versus the poor, and also the treatment of minorities. Another recalibration of society is the fact that we're gonna have a new early warning system. You know, when the pandemic first hit back in early 2020, scientists were caught flat-footed. 
they didn't know what they were up against. And by the time they realized that the pandemic was hitting them, there were thousands of people flooding into the emergency rooms of hospitals. We don't want to repeat that nightmare again. We want an early warning system. For example, take a look at dogs. Already at several major airports, especially in Europe and the Middle East, dogs are being used to sniff out people with the virus. And believe it or not, dogs can do it in 10 seconds with 96% accuracy. Amazing. And one day we'll be able to copy that with artificial intelligence sensors that can also sniff the presence of the virus. So when you go to the airport, you'll have to check in your luggage and perhaps be sniffed at by an artificially intelligent dog. Not to mention the fact that the sewer systems of the world are now being hooked up online. Normally, when you flush the toilet, you think, well, that's it, folks. However, now we realize that the sewer system is a repository of all, all the viruses that afflict society. And so scientists are saying we need an early warning system, a system of automatic sensors in the sewer system and water system to detect the virus before the hospitals get flooded with dying patients. And also thermometers. Thermometers are now being attached to the internet, giving us an instantaneous readout of where the hotspots are. And so if we had that before, thousands of people could have been saved. For example, take a look at the Mardi Gras. When the Mardi Gras happened last year, uh, temperatures spiked in that area for those thermometers that were picked up and hooked up to the internet. You can see that right on your computer screen. There was a spike in temperatures in New Orleans at that time. But people didn't put two and two together. They didn't realize that that was a harbinger of a huge tragedy. The Mardi Gras spread the virus. It was one of the first major super spreader events. So in the future, we're just gonna be used to the fact that there are millions of sensors in the environment protecting us from the next pandemic. Well, let's now venture into outer space. NASA has made it official now. The next goal of NASA is going to be the planet Venus. You know, when children say, starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight, they wish upon a star. Actually, they wish upon a planet, not a star. Chances are it's the planet Venus. The planet Venus is the brightest object in the night sky other than the moon. You've seen Venus every time you've looked up in the sky and noticed this bright object. Uh, and it's the morning star and the evening star for many children. In fact, when I was a kid, I read a science fiction story by Isaac Asimov where a brave astronaut would actually land on Venus because Venus was, well, it was a watering hole. It was tropical. It was a vacation spot for astronauts. Well, boy, were they wrong. We now know that Venus is our evil twin sister. In other words, temperatures soar to over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That is hotter than a baker's oven. That is beyond the melting point of lead. In fact, if you were to walk on the surface of Venus, your feet might sink into the molten, the molten metals that are in liquid form on the surface of Venus. And when it rains on Venus, there's no relief. It rains sulfuric acid. 
sulfur that comes from volcanoes mixes with other chemicals to create sulfur, uh, sulfuric acid, which in turn is one of the most toxic acids known. And so walking on the surface of Venus, you would sink into the molten surface. You would be crushed by the atmospheric pressure, which is 100 times the atmospheric pressure found on the planet Earth. And what's left of you will be burned to ashes with a rain of sulfuric acid. So in other words, forget it about landing on Venus to create a tropical environment. Well, then why go to Venus? And what happened? Venus is our twin. It's almost identical in size, except it's a little bit smaller, closer to the sun than the Earth. But why? Well, it was actually Carl Sagan, the astronomer who first figured it out. The atmosphere of Venus is almost pure carbon dioxide. And because it's closer to the sun than the Earth, there's a greenhouse effect. In fact, a runaway greenhouse effect. And so some people who think that the greenhouse effect is science fiction should simply look at Venus. That's why Venus should be our twin. But actually, temperatures soar to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Atmospheric pressure is 100 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth, and it rains sulfuric acid. Why? Probably because of the greenhouse effect. And so 30 years ago, we sent probes to Venus. We have radar from these probes bounce off the surface of Venus, giving us photographs, photographs of the surface of Venus. And so we actually know quite a bit about Venus. And so why is NASA going there? Well, of course, we haven't visited Venus in 30 years, plus the fact that it could give us more information about the greenhouse effect and the interaction of the atmosphere. You see, Mars and Venus represent alternative futures of the Earth. We are, in some sense, looking at possible futures of the Earth, looking at Venus, which is super hot, and Mars, which is super cold. We're right in the middle. So we can bask in the fact that we live in a temperate environment where life can be sustained, but, but if things go out of control, we could become more like Venus, this hellhole, or like Mars, this frozen desert. And so we can actually learn a lot about Venus. Plus the fact that some science fiction writers have said that maybe one day we'll build a space station on Venus. If you go up in the atmosphere high enough, tens of miles high in the atmosphere, temperature drops. Temperature drops to atmospheric room temperature. So in other words, if you have a balloon, you could actually create, in some sense, a space station, a balloon that would circle through the atmosphere and the temperatures would be moderate because you're way above the surface of Venus. And some people have even claimed that maybe life, life in the form of, let's say, microbes, may thrive in the surface of Venus miles up above the surface. However, that, of course, is still science fiction. It was announced a few months ago by some scientists that the chemical phosphine was detected in the Venusian atmosphere. Phosphine is an organic chemical found in areas where we have life forms, and so it stirred the imagination of astronomers. Other astronomers have said, bah, humbug, it's a fluke, it's, it's a false signal, there is no phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Well, perhaps we'll find out whether or not Venus can sustain life 
when we go back to Venus after a 30-year gap. And let's say a few things about UFOs. The military has been slowly leaking out information about what it knows. And for the most part, there's nothing sensational. There's no smoking gun. There's no chapter from the X-Files where somebody announces that, yes, they've captured alien life forms or whatever. The military, however, has made a rather big admission. It admits now that these objects are beyond the capabilities of even our classified research. Before, people could always say that in Area 51, there are stealth bombers and advanced forms of technology that cause these UFO sightings. But nope, the military has now admitted that these objects, whatever they are, have a capability beyond what we can muster in our classified research. These objects can travel between 5 and 20 Mach, that is 5 to 20 times the speed of sound. They can travel, break the sound barrier without a sonic boom. They can even go underwater, things that are beyond what we can do with our rockets. And speaking about space, we have to extend our congratulations to the Chinese. The Chinese were successful in launching their astronauts to begin the process of building their space station in outer space. Now, why is that important for us? Well, because the fact that our space station will soon be deorbited and become a piece of space junk. A hundred billion dollar piece of space hardware will probably be deorbited in the coming years because Russia said that after 2025, they're not going to help foot the bill anymore meaning that a $100 billion piece of hardware could come tumbling down from outer space. And let me say something about space tourism. The winning bid to go up into the atmosphere with Jeff Bezos, the winning bid was $28 million. And some people are saying, whoa, it's getting out of control. Space is becoming a plaything for billionaires who can afford to shell out $20 million just for an 11-minute ride into outer space. Does that say something about our priorities? And lastly, let me say some good news on the medical front. We've had a number of stories about Alzheimer's disease on this show. Some people think that Alzheimer's disease is the disease of the century, not just a disease that hits us for a few years, but this agonizing process of witnessing the death, the agonizing death of our loved ones, that's a permanent feature of society. So far, we have not had any success in reversing the course of Alzheimer's. But there's a ray of hope. At New York University, a study was done which says that at least in the animal kingdom, there is a way to slow down, maybe even reverse, the degradation caused by Alzheimer's disease. It turns out that there's an enzyme, CPGODN, which helps to clear out the junk, the debris created by Alzheimer's disease. It cleans out bad proteins. It cleans out the tau, the beta amyloid protein, and the misshapen proteins that gum up the brain. So in some sense, it's not really a cure. It simply cleans out the debris that's already there. But studies done on monkeys show that elderly monkeys have 59% fewer plaques in their brain. And it turns out that these monkeys, these elderly monkeys, have the mental acuity 
of a young monkey when administered with this protein. So again, this does not mean that we have a cure for Alzheimer's, but it does mean that we have success in clearing out some of the debris created by Alzheimer's disease, which in turn has reversed the cognitive decline of these elderly monkeys. And so scientists are elated by the fact that they've actually scored a success in this realm. So what's the next step? The next step is that scientists want to uh, increase the range of this therapy and eventually apply it to humans to see whether or not it can slow down the degradation caused by Alzheimer's disease. So this is good news. That is, for the first time, we actually have promise, a promise that we could reverse the damage created by Alzheimer's disease by cleaning out the debris. Now, let me explain. A protein molecule is a very complicated object, sometimes consisting of hundreds, thousands of atoms stuck together, and they have to fold up, fold up in a very specific way in order to do its magic. However, sometimes proteins fold up in the wrong way. And when these misshapen protein molecules hit other protein molecules, it makes them misshapen as well. And so the contagion can spread. So this is not the traditional disease paradigm where a germ splits in half. No, this is where a misshapen protein bumps into a neighboring protein and causes it to be misshapen as well. These are called prions, and it is another way in which disease can spread other than by the mitosis of bacteria or the spreading of viruses. So what this therapy does is it helps to clean out these misshaping proteins so they cannot infect other proteins. And so this is a very promising line of research. It's more modest than finding a cure for Alzheimer's disease because ultimately we don't even know where a cure would be found. Believe it or not, we don't actually know what sets off Alzheimer's disease. We know that it's associated with clumps of beta amyloid and tau amyloid proteins, but we don't know what the trigger is. This new therapy says, well, maybe we won't know what the trigger is, but let's clean it out. And sure enough, it turns out that you can increase the cognitive ability of these elderly monkeys by this process. And of course, many therapies that are promising in animals never make it to human trials or they fail. So don't get your hopes up. It simply means there's a promising avenue, but we'll have to wait and see whether or not this will apply to human patients as well. But remember, Alzheimer's disease could be the disease of the century. Imagine the millions of people that could suffer from the loss of their memory, their loss of memory of who they are, the loss of memory of their loved ones. In other words, everything they've struggled for could vanish in the midst of Alzheimer's disease. Well, that concludes the first part of exploration. Stay tuned for the second part of exploration when we talk about the origins of music. As we said before, the paradigm that could unify all the laws of physics could be music. 
the music of vibrating strings. And in the second part of exploration, we're going to bring on the late Oliver Sacks of Columbia University talking about musicophilia. Why is it that music resonates so deeply into the soul of humans? Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first part of Exploration, we mentioned the fact that music, music may be the unifying paradigm that gives sense and meaning to the universe itself. Now, let me explain. 2,000 years ago, Greek philosophers asked the question, what is it all about? What makes the universe tick? And two theories came out from ancient Greece. One was the theory of atoms. A means cannot, tom means cut, so atom means that which cannot be cut. Democrates pushed that theory that everything was made out of tiny, indestructible little balls called atoms. But the problem was, well, why do we have so many kinds of atoms? What makes these atoms tick? Another theory came out due to Pythagoras, the famous geometer who created the Pythagorean theorem of triangles. He said, no, the universe is based on music. He looked at a lyre string and plucked it and realized that the longer the string, the lower the note. He went to a blacksmith shop and saw a sword being made, and he realized the longer the sword, the lower the note. And then he said, aha, it's music, the mathematics of resonances. That's what is the basis of music. And so very quickly, he worked out the mathematics of music, which even today guides orchestras and philharmonics around the world. And so Pythagoras said that only music is rich enough, diverse enough, to explain the vast diversity of things we see around us stars and and galaxies and microbes and DNA molecules. How do you make sense of all that? Well, now, of course, we can combine these two together. We know that, yes, things are made out of atoms, but why do we have so many different kinds of atoms? What determines the characteristics of these atoms? Well, atoms, in turn, are made out of protons, neutrons, and electrons. But where do they come from? And why do we have so many subatomic particles when we smash protons apart? We get quarks, we get Higgs bosons, we get Yang-Mills particles and gluons and mesons, and it goes on and on and on. How can nature be so malicious at the fundamental level to create a zoo, a zoo of subatomic particles? Well, Pythagoras would say, simple, they're nothing but musical notes musical notes on a tiny vibrating string. Well, with us today is Professor Oliver Sacks. 
The late Professor Oliver Sacks wrote a very intriguing book called Musicophilia. That is, why is it? Why is it that we respond so vibrantly to music? What about the animal kingdom? Do they also respond to music? What is it about music that seems to hold the key to our soul? And so once again, we're going to talk to Professor Oliver Sacks of Columbia University, and the late professor is going to talk about musicophilia. Why is it that music resonates so deeply with the human soul? Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Oliver Sachs. He's a professor of psychiatry and clinical neurology at Columbia University, and he's written a rather odd book. It's called Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain. Have you noticed that music seems to be fundamental to our existence? And scientists realize that music appreciation probably even predates language in our human evolution. And why is it that music not only enchants us, enlivens us, but also reflects our moods? And music is a tremendous industry everywhere in the world. And why is that? Well, scientists are trying to tease apart the secrets of music and the brain in the process And today, once again, we have with us Professor Oliver Sachs, author of the new book, Musicophilia, who will try to explain why we appreciate music so much and what lights up in our brain. Professor Sachs, as a youth, how did you first get interested in science anyway? Um, I think that I got fascinated by, by various substances around the house. Um, going from soap to sugar to starch Is that to right? paint and, um, uh, and by various smells. And, and my first passion then was, was chemistry. Um, and it was, um, it, it was substances and their characteristics and their transformations which fascinated me first in the household and then I had a, a little lab of my own. Oh, a little chemistry kit, huh? Uh, well, well, it was a whole chemistry lab, and I, and um, I was very encouraged here by my parents. In fact, my mother had wanted to be a chemist, but then went on to become a doctor and a surgeon. But mm-hmm. she, you know, she had a nostalgia for chemistry, and so when I sort of filled the house with hydrogen sulfide or had explosions or charred explosions, made charred things on the lawn, that was okay with them. <laughs> okay, as long as you didn't blow up the house. Not quite. Okay. Now, your book uh, is about music. So how did you get interested in the whole question of music, which actually sounds kind of strange for uh, somebody who specializes in clinical neurology? Um, Well, um, I mean, on the personal side, I came from a a fairly musical household where, you know, which was always full of piano music and my brothers played instruments and there would be chamber music recitals. But as a clinical neurologist, um, uh, for me, the crucial 
incident was really more than 40 years ago when I went to a, a little hospital in New York and there were saw dozens of patients who had had the sleepy sickness, the encephalitis lethargica, and they were profoundly Parkinsonian and frozen, transfixed, really unable to initiate any movement or speech. Mm -hmm. And at that time, medicine couldn't touch them, but music could. And if they, uh, if music was played, they would suddenly be animated, be able to walk, to talk, to think. They would be become alive. And um, although it was a very sudden uh, on-off effect, and they would they would stop almost at mid-movement when the music stopped. But um, in Parkinson's, part of the brain is knocked out, which is necessary for the flow of movement and thought. And uh, um, and uh, they really needed an external substitute for that part of the brain. And I, I think this is what music provided. Mm -hmm. Now, some evolutionary psychologists looking at our evolution as a species say that music is really fundamental, um, as it is in the animal kingdom with some animals. Uh, could you elaborate your thoughts about how fundamental music is to our own history? Well, some say it is fundamental, and some and some say it is trivial. Um, the, um, uh, so that, for example, um, um, William James and, and in our own time Stephen Pinker see, have seen music as a rather trivial, incidental uh, thing. Um, but one finds music in every culture. It seems to be central in every culture. It has, it has uh, all sorts of roles for bringing people together in, um, uh, in war, in religion, in work, in play, in, in hunting, and uh, everything. And uh, there are certainly aspects of music which seem to have no um, exact parallel in speech or language. For example, the pulse or the beat of music and uh, here, um, synchronization with this, tap, tapping time, moving with, uh, uh, with real or imagined music appears spontaneously in every child, but it's not seen in any non-human animal. This is clearly part of human evolution, one which would seem to be independent and then presumably to have, uh, to have been retained because it was of selective advantage, maybe in bonding people together. Now, some uh, uh, people who look at animals look at birds and crickets. Uh, they say that the uh, song of a bird uh, advertises sexual health and maturity. Uh, the bird is saying that I am free of parasites, uh, I have a clear voice, I am available, and therefore it's a mating right. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, um, well, well, this is certainly what Darwin thought, and he compared the song of birds to the, you know, to the peacock's tail. You know, and, and and other forms of, of vocal or visual display, um, uh, but um, whether one should, um, I mean, and, and clearly there are elaborate structures with uh, um, with tone and rhythm, which are, um, but these tend to be repeated without much variation, and uh, this is sort of. Um, well, it is somewhat like an advertisement or a code, which one hears again and again, and, and then doesn't. Uh, so, so it seems to have a very special, limited, uh, or crucial, but, but, but very limited function, whereas um, I think music for us sort of um, opens us out or can open us out in all sorts of ways and has very wide and mysterious.
dollars. Now, I once read an um, autobiography of a rock and roll star growing up in Long Island as a teenager, and he said that, uh, well, the girls didn't look at him. He was a scrawny little kid, and uh, his rock, uh, star rockdom wouldn't take place till much later. But then he picked up the guitar, and then all of a sudden, all the girls began to look at him in a different way. And then he said to himself, that's the ticket. The way to get dates is to pick up the guitar. Now, of course, in high school, a lot of boys dream about becoming the next rock star. So do you think, therefore, that mating rights, uh, mating rights of homo sapiens uh, are um, intertwined with music? Yeah, well, 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 well absolutely. I, I, I mean, Darwin would have been fascinated by this story because Darwin thought that uh, music originated very early and before language and, 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 and precisely was... Um, you know, would be used in wooing and courtship and drawing attention to oneself, and um, uh, and uh, 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 that music would have a, um, a, a seductive power, and so would the musician. Um, of course, there's a rather could be a negative side to this, which Tolstoy talks about in one of his stories, Kreutzer Sonata, where the narrator's wife is seduced by a musician and his music, and then, of course, that results in a murder. But um, but 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 yes, um, absolutely. Sort of, uh, you know, the young males with guitars are, are highly prized. And isn't it true that music sort of dates you and also puts you into a box? Uh, I was at a meeting once where we were talking about music, and someone says, "Oh, I don't want to listen to all those 1960s retreads," and all of a sudden, a lot of people in the, in, the, in the group felt very old. Because here was this young kid saying, uh, oh, we don't want any 60s songs because you guys are old. Yeah. So do you think music is a way to typify people? That is, there's hip music, there's uh, traditional music, classical music. Uh, it's a way to put you in a box. Um, I, 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 um, I haven't really thought of those terms. Um, I, I, I mean, I, um, uh, I, I, suppose, I suppose I could be classified in a melancholic way as, you know, as one of those old so-and-sos who, you know, who has, who has only listened to classical music and dead white males from 1600 to 1900. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but I mean, so far as I'm concerned, there is an entire universe uh, in that classical music. Uh, there's no doubt an entire universe in, in rock music and Hindu music and in, in many other sorts of music. But I, I, I don't feel, um, I mean, I might be socially classified by my tastes, um, but uh, I, I don't care. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I don't feel, as it were, in an existential box. Okay. Uh, well, let's get into some of the delightful examples that are mentioned in your book. Um, I had a chance to interact. In fact, I was on a TV program with an individual who has suffered from a brain problem whereby he has an attention span, a memory span, of only about seven seconds, anything more than about seven, ten seconds, he forgets, and the only way to communicate with them is through music. Uh, could you elaborate? Um, yeah, well, well, this is Clive, or Clive Waring. I can sort of be open about his name, because um, he has appeared, sort of, you know, as you describe, and also his wife, Deborah, has written a wonderful book about him. But Clive was a very eminent musician, musicologist. He was a main introducer of Renaissance music into England. And then in 1985, he had a devastating herpes encephalitis. It's a, a very rare thing, one in a million people. We all have herpes virus, but almost no one gets encephalitis. But he got it. 
and it did a lot of neurological damage, and in particular it wiped out many aspects of his memory, uh, so that he is now severely amnesic, and as you say, can't remember you know, an event, a person, what was said for more than a few seconds, and also has a, uh, a retrograde deletion of memory, so that um, really the memories of the last sort of uh, 30 or 40 years have been wiped out for him. And, uh, uh, and um, plus a lot of general knowledge. But uh, in, in fantastic contrast to this, there is this his virtually perfect power, and at the highest level, to, um, uh, to perform music, to play, to sing, uh, to conduct a choir, to conduct an orchestra. And, um, and when he's doing this, he seems totally intact and happy and absolutely himself. One feels he's all there. And I think he feels that. Uh, but, but within seconds of the music stopping, he has no memory of it, and he is sort of uh, in this sort of terrible, confounded state. Now, um, one would wonder, how come that a man who has apparently forgotten so much and forgotten all the people and the events and most of the general knowledge he had accumulated in a lifetime, how come this is possible? And um, I, uh, are other things possible? One would say, yes, he can, he can walk around, he can dress rather elegantly, he, uh, uh, he can conduct a conversation, he is verbally fluent, or, um, and uh, he has these skills, and um, these skills of music-making uh, the how of music uh, um, seems to, uh, is, is uh, all of the procedures uh, are preserved in him because procedural memory, as psychologists call it, probably has a quite different basis from event memory or knowledge memory, and uh, the uh, the ability to perform activities depends on lower parts of the brain and below the cerebral cortex basal ganglia and the cerebellum, and these are not affected by the sort of encephalitis he had. Uh, they're quite different from the memory systems the, uh, which involve a part of the brain called the hippocampus. That's wiped out in Clive, but the lower parts of the brain are, quite, uh, are all intact, and these provide him with the action patterns for walking and talking and making music, and um, which he then invests with his uh, intelligence and sensibility, which is perfectly intact. Okay, I'll and so, so in a way, um, his great skill is preserved for him by lower parts of the brain. Okay, and the... this can happen with other things. I recently saw an actor, a very eminent actor, who was also amnesic, but who was still able to give stunning performances at a professional level and, uh, and to remember entire sort of Shakespeare plays and his, his acting repertoire. Okay. And, uh, uh, so that, that's what goes on with, with Clyde. Anyway, in the program that I saw with Clyde, it was sort of like he was, was wrapped up with Groundhog Day. Remember that movie with Bill Murray where he's fated to repeat the same day over and over and over again? Because when you walk into the room, he's delighted to see you. But then after 10 seconds or so, he forgets who you are, and he's delighted to see you again. And he repeats the same thing over and over because he has no memory of meeting you in the first place. And yet he's able to play these beautiful piano pieces, as you mentioned, which is uh, 
quite remarkable. Music is really a definitely a different part of the brain than we normally associate with uh, short-term memory. Also, tell us a little about the children with Williams syndrome. What is Williams syndrome? And describe these group of children that you mentioned in your book. Yes, um, Williams was a cardiologist in, in the 1960s. He described these children who had problems with the heart and the great vessels, a lack of elastic tissue. They looked sort of strange. But uh, they also had a very remarkable constellation of character and mental traits, uh, both great gifts and great defects. Um, on the one hand, they were retarded, had IQs in the 50 or 60 range, but they were very articulate. They would use large vocabularies. They loved telling stories. They were immensely sociable, and they loved music. Um, without exception, people with Williams syndrome are enraptured by music. And I first saw this back in 95 when I went to a music camp, um, especially for people with Williams Syndrome. Um, and uh, they, they ranged in age then from, from 3 to 50. Um, but the one thing they had in common was this, this, uh, this loquacity, this incontinent trusting friendliness, and, and this love of music, and, and, and they would get together, they would make music together and talk about music. They weren't all musically talented, but they were all in love with music. Now, also in your book, you talk about people with amusia. And uh, to them, even listening to a gorgeous symphony sounds like a bunch of clattering sounds. Uh, could you elaborate? Um, well, if may, um, look, there are a lot of people who have a tinea, but a tone deaf. Uh, they may love music, they recognize music, they may, um, they may sing very loudly in the bath in a way which gives them a great pleasure but is intolerable to other people because they're off-key. But, but this is not the real absolute amusia. In absolute amusia, uh, there may be gross difficulties telling whether one pitch is higher than another. And, um, and with this, uh, uh, people may not be able to detect a tone, a semitone, half an octave, and so the very building blocks of music are not there. And people in this situation can't recognize any music, can't reproduce any music. Music may sound sort of awful to them, and even if it doesn't sound awful, it sounds, as Nabokov uh, wrote in, in, in his autobiography, um, uh, music sounds like an arbitrary succession of more or less irritating sounds. Um, and uh, and so they are really cut off from the perception of music and the enjoyment of music, although their perception of speech sound may be perfect. But um, but speech is not nearly as demanding of uh, of pitch perception as music is, and of course the words give meaning, whereas uh, music, in a sense, does not have meaning, and one is exclusively dependent on hearing it right. Now, sometimes we hear about people with perfect pitch. That is, they hear a sound, and then they can say, oh, that's C-sharp, or uh, that's yes. F. Is that true, or is that just mythology, uh, oh, that oh, there's no, something called um, perfect um, pitch? No, no, this is perfectly true. And the person who says G-sharp uh, instantly um, um, says it with the same conviction and certainty as we say blue or green, uh, without any need to, you know, to make a comparison with another color. Um, and uh, 
the uh, absolute pitch seems to be uh, relatively rare in the general population, like one in 10,000. It's much commoner, one in 10 or 15 among professional musicians. Uh, it is bizarrely common, incidentally, in those who are born blind. Is that right? So half of those who are born blind have absolute pitch. Um, and also it is much commoner in people who speak a tonal language like Thai or Mandarin, where the, the, where the speech has to stay with a quarter of a tone or an eighth of a tone. Um, there's a, a thought that all of us may be born, that absolute pitch may be universal in the first year of life, but then gets pruned out of the brain and the vast majority of people um, for whatever reason. Although intense exposure to music early in life seems to be able to allow one to retain it. Although if one doesn't have absolute pitch, there's no way of getting it. And it does depend on specific mechanisms in the brain. Okay, now let me talk about something that everybody has experienced at one point or another, and that is sometimes you get a catchy tune in your mind and you can't let go. I mean, it just repeats itself over and over again. You can't sleep at night. You can't get rid of this tune. Uh, why is that? Um, well, um, these catchy tunes, they're adhesive. Um, the Germans used to speak about earworms. I like the term brainworms. Uh, um See, um, 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 all of us, there's something about musical memory and the internal playing of music, even in relatively non-musical people who can't, for example, voluntarily bring out a tune. But I think all of us have involuntary musical imagery, and um, uh, which usually has some relation to context, to our feelings, to what we are doing. But with these earworms, uh, you hear a piece of music and then it sort of somehow gets into a loop and becomes autonomous and, as you say, plays itself endlessly, um, having lost all connection with, uh, with sense, with meaning, with pleasure. Um, and um, I think this is an example of, of how our musical susceptibility becomes a sort of musical vulnerability. We can, we can be taken over by a few bars of music. Um, in a way which I think doesn't have any parallel in, in other senses. I mean, the nearest might be uh, a word which fascinates us or a couple of lines of poetry, but not everyone has that, whereas I think probably almost everyone has had earworms at one time or another. And, uh, and of course, they're exploited by, um, you know, by popular music and by the advertising industry. Um, although it, it could be sort of counterproductive. I, I mean, if I have an earworm about toothpaste, uh, I, w I would never want to buy that toothpaste. I would want to stay as far as possible from it and its earworm. Now, let me ask you a question that is not exactly addressed in your book, but it's a multi-billion dollar industry to write catchy tunes that hit number one on the pop charts. And there are many theories as to what constitutes a catchy tune. But in your research, have you ever came across any way in which to figure out what makes a tune catchy so that millions of people spend hundreds of millions of dollars getting that piece of Well, oops, I just realized that we have run out of time. Sorry about that. But once again, our special guest today was... Professor Oliver Sacks. 
uh, the late professor at Columbia University, who was a pathbreaker in terms of introducing aspects of psychology to the general public. And he was talking today about his book, Musicophilia. Why is it that music resonates with the human soul? And for that matter, being a physicist, I realized that music may be the paradigm for the entire universe, that the universe consists of musical notes written in the language of subatomic particles. And you can find out more about that idea, the music of physics, by getting a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of, well, everything. Good day. I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics. And if you want to know more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. In fact, it's my fifth New York Times bestseller, so find out what I do by going to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Good day.